well-known author says, in 90s Vegas, call girls worked for entertainment services that were little more than phone numbers, dispatchers, and drop safes. When a mystery hacker started diverting customers' calls to one services number, it launched a series of dangerous events that involved the mob, the feds, hackers, service owners, and the phone system itself. This slice of Sin City history is as little known as it is thrilling and well told by investigative journalist Glenn Meek and crime writer Dennis Griffin. This is Imagine Publicity on Air, and I'm your host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. Yeah, nice to be with you again, Delilah. Always, always. Listen, I've never been to Vegas, so let's kind of set the backdrop of all of this case by describing what was it like in Vegas in the 90s when this all takes place. Well, let me go ahead and start that off, and then uh, obviously uh, Dennis can uh, chip in as well. I know uh, he's uh, somewhat of a snowbird and had a uh, house here, a residence here for a long time, and uh, he's very familiar with Las Vegas and certainly has done some books about the organized crime aspect of Las Vegas, but generally in the 90s, it was a wild time. It was a time of boom years for Las Vegas. It was the fastest growing metropolitan area in the country. Uh, They were building new mega resorts. Uh, It seemed like they were opening uh, on a regular basis every couple of months, and they were at the same time imploding all the old ones and building all the new ones. And at that time, There was also, in addition to the explosive growth of population in the Las Vegas Valley, there was an explosive growth of what were called out-call entertainment services, or they're commonly referred to as escort services, and they are very similar in nature, and essentially what these services were, were uh, supposed exotic dancers who would come to a guest's hotel room and supposedly perform an exotic dance, but in reality... Uh, in most cases, uh, what this really was was a way for uh, prostitutes or call girls and sometimes call guys. There were uh, men who were involved in this as well, but not to the extent that the women were. And they would come to the rooms, and es- essentially it was uh, it was a um, sort of a front in many cases, uh, if not most cases, uh, for prostitution. And so uh, that was very widespread, uh, organized, uh, oldest profession really going on in Las Vegas. And during those uh, boom years, it was a pretty crazy time. Uh, there were a lot of these services operating. Uh, again, they were quasi-legal. They were legal on paper, but police say uh, what they were really doing in most cases uh, was not legal. It was prostitution. So that's really how this whole paper got started. Maybe you should explain the legalization of prostitution in Las, uh, not only Las Vegas, but Nevada. How, how does that really work? And was it different back then than it is now? Uh, not so much in terms of the law. Um, prostitution, you know, was legal uh, from the beginning of statehood uh, or it was, let's put it this way. It was not illegal. Uh, it wasn't until about 1971 that the Nevada legislature actually took action to regulate prostitution. What they did was they said you couldn't have it in these uh, uh, counties with certain uh, large populations, which was Washoe, 
and Clark County. And Washoe is Reno, and Clark County is Las Vegas. So prostitution in the counties in which Reno and Las Vegas sat was actually illegal. Uh, it was permitted in uh, brothels, legal brothels, which were regulated by the state, uh, in rural counties. But not every rural county uh, elected to have brothels. So there are some rural counties that could have legalized prostitution in brothels, but they don't. And there are others that do. Nye County, which is adjacent to Clark County, uh, does have legalized prostitution in the form of brothels. So it is out there in the state, but it's only in the rural areas, areas and not in Las Vegas or Reno, which were more the tourist mecca. So a lot of tourists would come in, especially people from uh, out of the country, and they would think, oh, my goodness, well, you know, it, it must be legal in Las Vegas. And so they would call these services thinking that they were, in fact, legal. Uh, and the services that they were advertising were legal, if, if someone really was coming to your hotel room to do a dance. But uh, in reality, uh, as uh, Jack Sheehan says uh, in a book for her book, you know, the, re- the reality of it is that, you know, men are not going to pay the kind of prices they were paying just to watch someone dance in their hotel room. Well, thanks for that clarification, because I think that is the misperception probably of most of the general public, myself included. Of course, I really don't care about the prostitution as far as, you know, buying into it, let's say. But anyway, yeah, that needed to be clarified, because I think uh, most people don't understand that, that in Las Vegas itself, it is not legal. It is not legal in Las Vegas or Reno. That's correct. Okay, that's that's good to know. Well, Denny, when the times that you were out there, and I know you've written a lot of books about the history of crime in Las Vegas, and especially mob-related, what was your experience? Did you any of the people that you interviewed or or knew when you were living out there were any of them formerly involved in this? You know, I, I, my history in Vegas, is, as far as first visiting Vegas, was back to when I was in the Navy, uh, back in 1962 to 66. Uh, I was on various deployments, and we passed through Vegas, going between um, California and Arizona. So I had been in Vegas way back then. The Strip was just actually being constructed. I I recall that Caesar's Palace was under construction during the trip. Um, And it was kind of a wild place then, but uh, then I didn't get back to Vegas until the mid-'80s. And obviously there had been a lot of changes. And we started, uh, my wife and I started taking these week-long excursions, package deals uh, to Vegas. And that that's when I first encountered personally, or saw personally, the uh, the prostitution issue. Because they were on the, uh, running amok, if you will, on the streets, uh, the strip. Uh, you could be walking down the, the strip and these uh, these prostitutes would virtually try to grab the men physically and and, and uh, take them to, you know, to a motel room somewhere. And if they were with a woman, uh, they tell the woman, you can either, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have your your boyfriend back in, uh, in a half hour or whatever, or you can come join the parties. I mean, they were extremely aggressive uh, back then. And um, most of my books I wrote about the organized crime in Vegas 
ended with the Tony Spilatro era. So when when he was murdered in '86 is when I stopped uh, doing my writing, and every time I would do some kind of an event, a book signing or a talk somewhere, people would come up to me after and, and they would ask, well what happened after the mobsters got thrown out of the casinos? What happened to organized crime? Is it gone? And I would always say, well, there's too much money in Vegas. So you're not going to have it gone. But it's, uh, I'm sure it's still here, but just in a different form. And um, it turned out uh, when when I got talking with Glenn initially about this, uh, this project, um, he enlightened me. And, and what had happened to a, a lot of the organized crime stuff was in the adult entertainment area. So that uh, that helped me to understand what had happened after uh, after the Spilatro era in Vegas. And it was really fascinating uh, because I had been like you, uh, Delilah. Initially, I assumed when I heard Las Vegas, I assumed everything was legal, including prostitution. And it... Uh, I didn't realize until much later that that was not the case, that the, the, as Glenn explained, it was legal in certain counties, but not in the uh, heavily populated counties. So it was a real learning experience for me, and uh, it, it was the source of a lot of questions and a lot of uh, interest uh, by people wanting to know what happened to organized crime and what they did after the, their casino interests were uh, uh, liquidated, if you will. So I, I really enjoyed uh, and was thankful that uh, be in touch with Glenn and to get into this because it was uh, a very interesting to me. Yeah, it, either one of you can answer this question, Denny. You talk about you know the, at that time the girl Dan guys on the street actually grabbing people, but let's look further back. Who was controlling these girls? Who put them out there on the street? I mean, was it a profession they chose to go into for the fast money? Or was there someone behind the scenes that they had to pay? Well, David, let me let me go ahead and uh, take that, because that's kind of an interesting aspect of this story as well, because it did change. And part of this book is about technology. And as uh, someone uh, wiser than me said, uh, a tech writer actually said, uh, you know, this case is really about uh, the oldest profession meeting the newest technology uh, because the, the whole issue of uh, prostitution and how they connected with their jobs or their customers uh, did radically change around this time. And that's part of what the story is, is how technology affected the oldest profession. And um, what, we, what we had, you know, back in the day, uh, even though it was always, you know, theoretically uh, not legal, um, you know, in Clark County, uh, there were there were brothels that were that would crop up, and those were uh, very often uh, backed up by organized crime figures. Uh, but then when they, you know, when they got rid of the brothels in in Clark County, and, and you know, more or less essentially uh, formalized the uh, brothels being in the in the rural counties, um, that really sort of uh, that sort of pushed the uh, mob guys out of that business as well, because then you did have these women that Danny described as being essentially um, independent, you know, well, I don't know if you call them independent contractors, but certainly uh, they were out there. They might be working for a pimp or something like this, or a pimp might have four or five different women working for him, and they were trolling the strip or trolling the streets around the strip. 
uh, looking for customers. So it was very low-level type of prostitution, and it was very disorganized. What happened with these outcall services is it became organized again. Um, and many of these services were established by former dancers themselves, exotic dancers. Uh, and there, you had sort of a combination. You had, let's say, uh, women who were working for pimps, but they could also go to work for these services as well. And then they would get, you know, steady referrals. And uh, you had a lot of women who, for the first time, and I interviewed a couple of them during the course of my investigation of this um, sort of thing back in the 80s and 90s, uh, who said, yeah, it was just, it was, it was the money. And it was a lifestyle choice. And you do tend to see that more in the higher end call girl racket where these women, you know, are making extremely good money. Their clients are well healed. They're very often, you know, I mean, look, we've seen, you know, the stories about uh, Heidi Fleiss and Charlie Sheen. I mean, there have been, you know, uh, call girl rackets <laughs> that have appealed to very high rollers, people who are, um, you know, they're well-to-do. They have, uh, in many cases, a lot of fame and a lot of money. But what these services did was they sort of took it down to a, uh, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily working class, but definitely a middle They made it a middle-class thing where, you know, um, guys coming for a bachelor party or guys coming for a golf weekend, you know, they could actually go into the phone book and they'd find these ads for these dancers, uh, knowing full well, you know, basically from folk wisdom, that these weren't normally going to come up to your room and do a dance. They were going to uh, come up and be, essentially be uh, sort of middle-class call girls. And that's what, uh, what happened with these services, and that's what these services did. They, they actually once again concentrated uh, the prostitution that was going on into, the ha- in, into a handful of hands, uh, the people who were running these services. And even though, you know, you might have 150 services listed in the uh, county business licensing records, you know, maybe half a dozen guys actually, and occasional women, uh, actually ran these services and uh, were getting the benefits of uh, all these women who were going out supposedly to dance, but in reality were doing what you might call the proverbial horizontal bop. (laughs) That's a good one. So where did these girls come from? I mean, uh... I don't think they all just grew up in Las Vegas and had career aspirations of, of walking the streets or working in a brothel. Um, oh, no, you no. Find you're that, absolutely right. That's correct. Right. So, I mean, are these vulnerable girls who came from all over the country looking for their dreams to come true in Vegas or Hollywood? Oh, yes. Many of them. That's Many of them, that's exactly what it was. Like I said, you know, you did have some who were – uh, you know, had pimps, and the pimps more or less just said, sign up for these services. At the time, though, you were you were required to get a work card to be an alcohol dancer. And so that actually gave the police, a, you know, an opportunity to review past histories on a lot of these people, and they could weed these folks out. And so, you know, if you were caught uh, in a prostitution sting, for example, as an alcohol dancer, then, you know, you could get your work card pulled and you wouldn't be able to do that anymore. But there were, certainly there were a lot of these women who were uh, run by pimps. There were a lot that just came out and, you know, we had situations, and again, I actually spoke to some of these women personally in interviews I did, where there were women who were um, school teachers, they were secretaries, they were um, bankers, uh, and, and they would come out on weekends or 
on, um, you know, when you'd have, let's say, a major prize fight where there was going to be a lot of people in town, a lot of people with money, and they would they would come and work as these alcohol dancers slash slash prostitutes uh, just for those weekends to make a ton of money, and also because I think a lot of them found it exciting. Um, so for some of them it was a lifestyle, for a lot of them it was not, but for some of them it was, and but but, but yeah, the, the vast majority came from elsewhere. And again, we we did see. I know back in those days, uh, you know, on the eve of a, of a major prize fight, or if there was going to be a, uh, a championship basketball game or something like that, you would see, you know, hundreds if not thousands of women uh, coming in from California and Arizona and other states, uh, just coming in for the weekend, signing up to to be, you know, quote, uh, out call entertainers and dancers. How do you compare this situation? with modern-day human trafficking. And, you know, you kind of run along the same lines here. And especially when you're talking about big events, I know, you know, they talk about the Super Bowl and other big events like that as hubs for human trafficking. And you're kind of describing the same thing, only it sounds more like it was more voluntary, where now we're talking about, you know, people actually organizing this and recruiting women to attend these or these events. Is there a difference well, or, or not? Well, it's a mixture. That's the, see, that's the whole thing. I mean, a lot of people having prostitution being legal in the state of Nevada and then having it being illegal in the metropolitan area where I've lived for the last 31, 32 years. I've had a chance to actually examine this on a, on a, on a fairly close basis. And, and I think, again, just as, as there's been a misconception about whether prostitution is legal in Las Vegas, which it's not, uh, although it is legal in rural Nevada, um, people tend to see prostitution as one monolithic thing, and it's not. I mean, you've got desperate people on the streets uh, selling their bodies so that they can get a fix of, of meth or crack. Okay, um, and, and they're walking the streets. You've got high-end call girls, um, you know, who are having liaisons with Hollywood celebrities and uh, high rollers and, and business people um, who are doing that strictly because that's something they want to do and they like making the money at it. And then you had the middle sort of class people, which were a lot of these folks who were doing um, the out-call services where they were, they were, you know, working for these services and, and, and being referred by, by telephone. Uh, today, most of that, everything is now on the Internet, and people are, are, are hooking up in various ways uh, directly as opposed to having a middle person. So, again, it's, it, 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 it's all of that. Yes, is there trafficking? Was there trafficking? Absolutely. Is there still trafficking? Yes. Uh, but these days, the police tend to look more, carefully and, and, and center their investigative uh, resources on trafficking that involves, you know, children or people who are being brought in from other countries who can't speak the language and they owe uh, the traffickers money. Um, they tend to not look at, you know, people who may be doing this because that's the sort of thing they like to do. I mean, let's face it, there are people who are um, porn stars, there are people who are X-rated movie stars. They do essentially the same thing for a paycheck. Um, so, you know, the, the police in recent years have been looking more 
at, at victims and at human trafficking, and really not so much just if there's prostitution going on, uh, we've got to stop it. I, th- I think they're looking more for people who have been trafficked, who have been, uh, you know, pressed into this sort of thing uh, against their will, and especially anything involving children. If you look at most of the, the prostitutions these days, there are people who have, um, you know, brought underage girls across state lines in order to do this sort of thing. Okay, let's get into the meat of this book, this this particular case, and, and how and why the two of you came together to write this story. What happened um, as far as the actual case that, I, as a reporter, I'm, I'm guessing you were investigating that, correct? That is correct. Yeah, what happened there was we were, everybody was aware of these services. As I mentioned, I had been doing, you know, um, uh, numerous reports on how these services operated, and they, the services were having sort of a legal battle with Clark County during this whole time because, in order to get the word out, they were they were you know distributing these pamphlets along the strip that had all these colorful images of women, you know, in provocative poses and whatnot, and and families were st- and this was also about the same time they were starting to sort of pitch Las Vegas as a more family destination, which sort of erroneous to begin with, but anyway. That's the way it was going. And so you had all these people out on the strip handing out uh, these pamphlets that, that, you know, described uh, uh, women directly to your room and all this stuff. And um, the resorts were upset about that. The tourists were upset about that. They didn't want to have all this material, you know, pushed into their faces while they were walking down the strip, especially if they're bringing the kids now. And at the same time, we had all these ads in the phone book. There were like 150 full-page ads. Uh, advertising these alcohol services or exotic dancers uh, in, in the phone book. And people were getting upset. They said, you know, my kid goes into the phone book, and it's like Playboy magazine. Uh, and so there was a lot of pressure on the county, you know, to sort of curb this this advertising, especially since advertising prostitution in Clark County is also illegal. And so they went through this whole back-and-forth legal thing. Uh, are we advertising uh, outcall dancing services, which are protected by the First Amendment, or are we advertising something that's really prostitution? So while all this is going on, some of these service owners start to notice that their call volumes are dropping. In other words, let's say uh, you have one of these services and normally you get 100 calls from guys on the strip in hotel rooms that want you to send a woman over to their room. Suddenly, now you're getting 50 calls. And then there's a major fight or, like I said, a, a you know, basketball tournament becomes a town or March Madness. And suddenly your call volumes are dropping even more. And what these service owners determined was that a hacker, someone was hacking into the phone system. So that let's suppose you're a tourist uh, in a hotel room and you want a, a woman to come to your room. And you go to the phone book and you look at the ad and, and you call Swinging Sally's. Uh, escort service, okay? But the phone call doesn't go to swinging salads. The phone call has been intercepted and redirected to sexy Susie's service, okay? <laughs> so what the service owners were thinking was someone had hacked into the phone system and was causing one particular group of outcall services to get most of the calls, while the others weren't getting the phone calls that were meant for them. And one of the things about this was, because, again, these services were 
quasi-legal. I mean, they're legal on paper as long as they do what they're supposed to do, they're legal. But if they're really a front for prostitution, these people really can't go to the cops and say, hey, you know, uh, my uh, illegal prostitution empire is being threatened by hackers. And so in one case, according to the federal agents, one of these service owners decided to go to a guy who was associated with the Bonanno crime family in New York and complain to him and ask for his help to come and solve the problem. And that's how the FBI got involved in this, tracking those folks down here to see what they were up to and whether they could actually find this person who was behind the uh, hacking of the phone calls. And then, of course, the idea would be to make the person who was hacking the phone calls then work for the guys who were affiliated with this New York crime family. And that's how this whole thing got started. Wow. So, Denny, were any of your former mob buddies included in this group, or was this something that the, I'd say the Sicilian Mafia controlled from afar, maybe controlled from New York? Yeah, I I talked quite a bit with the, about this with Frank Collado, who was uh, part of the Spilatro crew in Las Vegas. And um, he told me that, to the best of his knowledge, the guys that had been originally involved with the casino operations and the skimming and the street crimes and so forth, that after uh, after their reign ended, that he didn't know of any of those particular guys who got involved with the adult entertainment. He didn't personally know of anyone. Um, and the idea that perhaps New York, uh, the New York people had uh, had more or less taken control or were more involved in that, he he seemed to think that that was the uh, that that made a lot of sense to him. And he, he didn't know of any of the old guys, the old former uh, casino skimming guys, who stayed on or went into the adult entertainment business. Okay, yeah, so right. there were a lot of. Uh... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say. So let's take it to the next step. What happens next? You've got you've got the mafia involved in this, and you've got the FBI and the feds involved in this. <laughs> right. And and all these little creatures out here that are running these call centers. So how does it uh, all come together and and sort of blow up? Oh, that that is really the heart of the story, and that's to me the most interesting about it. We had it was like a three ring circus. So first you have these outcall enter, entertainment service owners saying we're being ripped off, but we really can't go to the police. So you know we need help, and at least one of them uh, allegedly goes to the mob to get that help, right? And then they send three guys down to try to find this computer hacker and make him work for them. So you got that going on. In the meantime, a guy from New York who had an escort service in New York moves to Las Vegas and decides, hey, look how lucrative it is out here in Las Vegas. Look how these services are expanding. Look how big Las Vegas is becoming. So I'm going to open an escort service here. He does that. He gets busted by Las Vegas Metro Police, the Panda, okay? He says during his arrest, at least one of the cops says, hey, look, you know, we don't have to do this. You know, you uh, sort of, you know, grease our palms, and we'll make sure that, uh, you know, you don't – your people don't get busted in these things. So he goes to the FBI and says, hey, you know, I just got shaken down by a Las Vegas vice cop. And then the FBI says, well, would you allow us to put an agent in your escort service posing as a manager? And the guy goes, yeah. And so he does that. 
And now the FBI has an undercover agent posing as a manager of these escort services. And in the meantime, these escort services are talking back and forth to each other about the problem of the hacking. And that gets the FBI into these guys from New York because then they start talking. They think this guy is working for, they think that the undercover agent is working for a service that wants the mafia's protection as well. So that's how it all gets started. And then, you know, the feds start uh, tapping everybody's telephone and wiring up their hotel rooms and getting, collecting all this intelligence about what's going on. And so you've got, you know, allegedly uh, these uh, uh, alleged mob and forces looking for the computer hacker and the FBI is chasing them. And then you've got the, com- the guy that the mob thought was the computer hacker saying, hey, it's not me. But he had an interesting story as well. This guy was a guy who was a telephone tapper. He had worked both sides of the law. And so everybody suspected that he was the guy uh, who was making, quote, the phones funny. But then again, you know, he denied that it was him. He said it was probably people who had girlfriends who were uh, working for these alcohol services. And these guys had worked for, um, you know, the, the companies who serviced the switchboards in the hotels. And according to him, what was going on was these guys who had the girlfriends who were in the escort industry uh, then would go into the hotel hotels and during routine maintenance on the switchboards, put in little black uh, electronic devices that would reroute these uh, escort service phone calls. So you had all this stuff going on, and no one really knew what the truth was. You know, no one knew, was this guy really the hacker? Was it somebody else? Was it guys working for the uh, PBX services in the hotels? Who knew? And you know, all you got the FBI doing is saying, oh, my God, we got to be careful because these guys are running around town, you know, talking about, you know, using guns and <laughs> taking over business and whacking, uh, you know, people who get in their way. And so uh, it was it was a it was a it was a three ring circus. And the FBI was doing everything you know they could to try to keep tabs on all these people running around chasing each other. Well, without giving away secrets from the book did they did they pin this on one particular person or was it pinned on uh, a group of people or was it ever solved it was never solved uh and one of the things we do in the book is we we show how interesting it was that because this technology was so new uh it defied not only old school type mob methods but it also defied even the FBI's ability to get to the bottom of it back in the 90s because neither organized crime nor federal agents were really in a position shortly after the Internet you know, became a big sensation to get to the bottom of this cybercrime. And no one was really sure in those days how secure the phone system was. There was certainly testimony that surfaced later on where experts said, you know, the phone system was vulnerable and could be hacked. And again, part of the part of the book, we talked to, uh, you know, former phone hackers who said, oh, absolutely, this could have happened. Absolutely, it could have happened. But did it? Right. You know, and, and Las Vegas being such a resort town and people coming from all over um, to – Come there and have a good time, however you want to have it. I mean, I live in a resort area myself, and I I see firsthand how this happens. People 
go out of town and they do things they wouldn't normally do at home because nobody here knows who they are. And it also tends to attract a lot of the criminal element who just kind of hang out and blend in with all the other tourists. And they can even hide out for a long time in a resort area. So do you find this, this, this particular caper could actually have happened anywhere, right? Oh, I think it could have, but I think what well, again, you know, to use the the modern cliche of a perfect storm, you had everything going on at this point. You had all this money being generated by these services. You had this explosive growth of, uh, you know, casino resorts and, you know, all this increased tourism. And then you did have, you know, a uh, an environment that has been a traditional place for organized crime um, to make its money. And then you also had a situation where organized crime could not make its money in the casinos anymore. So they were looking for other places to find it. And so, yeah, absolutely. It could happen anywhere. It could have happened anywhere. I think it was probably most likely to happen here in Las Vegas just for all those other reasons because of the explosive population growth and everything else. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think it was almost... It just seemed much more likely that it would happen here in Las Vegas than anywhere else. Well, it makes a great backdrop, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> well, yes. I know. Let's talk about the difference between, you know, now, like you say, everything can be ordered online. So apparently everything that happened back then, the the, the system, let's call it, the way that this system operated, mm-hmm. now everything is done online how how are how are this how is this being controlled or is it i think it's less it's less susceptible to control and this is actually if you look especially with the history of prostitution and organized crime in nevada mob guys will look for a place where they can grab one guy okay and control a bunch of things um because when it's decentralized, it, you know, it, it's hard for them to make money. But if it's centralized, they can grab that one person and get a large flow of money. And that's what was happening with these alcohol services. It was becoming centralized again. There were certain agencies and certain people on those agencies. And if you could control them, you could control the majority of what was going on. But now, you know, now that we have the Internet and people can reach out themselves, they can create their own websites, they can, you know, become part of different apps. Uh, they can reach out directly without having these, uh, these services in the middle. So I think the fact that it's become more decentralized makes it less susceptible to organized crime control. Now, you're going to still have that human trafficking element, especially with Asian organized crime uh, triads that we've seen where they're bringing people in, uh, you know, to work in underground brothels, for example. Um, and these people don't speak English. They don't know anybody in, in, in the country, and they feel like they owe the smugglers who brought them to the country uh, something. So they they end up you know working in these underground brothels. You still see that, but in terms of of, of the uh, you know these alcohol services, they are far far fewer uh, today than they than they were. And a lot of these folks, they are they're working through places like uh, you know uh, Craigslist. Uh, the personal ads of Craigslist, or um, I think there's one called Redbook. Uh, people are doing it through Facebook, uh, but they're doing it much more online, and it's much 
less, you know, uh, concentrated in the hands of a few people. It's, it's decentralized. So that makes it less, to me, based on what I've seen, in my opinion, it makes it less susceptible to organized crime. What about, you know, there's all, we talk about the mafia and everyone thinks the Italian Sicilian mafia, but there's really so many other different mafias all over the world. You have, like you said, the Asian mafia, there's, you know, the Russian mafia. I mean, I think there's a mafia in every country that is, does have a certain sense of control over trafficking of, of human beings. Um, and then you put in, you mix in corruption and put that into the mix where you have corrupt politicians, you have corrupt local police, you have, you know, corruption running rampant. So how does that all play into today's sense of organizing call girls? We're going to call them call girls. How does that work out? That's an excellent question. I don't know that I, uh, I don't know that I can answer it. I, I, like I say, I think that it's less susceptible to traditional organized crime. Uh, I know we have seen um, human trafficking um, initiatives by the feds that do involve usually transnational organized crime groups, like you're talking about, whether it's the Asian triads, whether it's uh, you know the cartels down in Mexico. Uh, certainly, we see how strong the cartels have become down in Mexico. We've seen that recently. Um, you know, if nothing else, and you know, El Chapo's son, uh, he, he gets you know arrested by the federales, and the federales back down and release him because you know, in a in a face-to-face standoff with the cartels, the cartels were holding all the cards. So it just shows you how powerful some of these these organized crime organizations have become. Um, I think, though, I think. I think in a, to a great extent, though, I mean, the, the, the fact the Internet has made people who want to seek these services, uh, seek them out, and people who want to offer these services um, as a way to connect, I think it's, you know, it's made it, it's, I think it's taken it more out of the hands of organized crime figures. I know we've seen when the FBI, for example, took down a, a website called Backpage. A backpage was widely used uh, by sex workers to hook up with clients, but also was being used by these pimps and whatnot uh, to, um, you know, get guys to come out, and uh, and they were essentially uh, human trafficking uh, underage girls, and and that's how you know that's why the FBI ended up taking its uh, taking that page down. It was because of uh, human trafficking investigations and their and they're concentrating now on making sure that, uh, you know, underage girls are not being victimized. So, um, you know, again, I just think it's, it's probably in terms of traditional organized crime, based on what I've seen, it's, it's less so. I do think you have these transnational organizations uh, that are out there doing it. But, again, it's, it's lower profile because they're not out there advertising this stuff. Um, and, again, that was one of the things I think that was an issue back in the 90s with these uh, alcohol dance services was the advertising. I mean, it was everywhere. It was in the phone book. It was on the strip. Guys were handing these, these pamphlets out, uh, you know, on the strip, the families and, and men with their wives walking down the strip, and people were getting upset about it. Uh, and now you, you, you see a little bit of that out on the strip, but not nearly so much as you used to. 
Exactly. Well, this this is uh, a thrilling book, to say the least. This particular case that you've written about um, has a lot of twists and turns and a lot of outrageous characters, I think. Um, so as we're coming to a close, let's talk about where you can pick up a copy. Well, obviously, uh, uh, published by Wild Blue, Wild Blue Press. And you can uh, order a copy on the uh, Wild Blue Press website. You can also take a look at some of the photographs uh, that we have of, of some of those characters that you mentioned who were involved in this uh, caper, uh, some of the people who were arrested, uh, some of the people they thought were actually, uh, you know, uh, involved in some way. Um, and then you can um, also order it on uh, just Amazon.com, Amazon.com, you know, just as you would anything else, but certainly uh, as you would a book. Do either of you have any plans for uh, events or book signings coming up? Yeah, I can go ahead and jump out. We're going to have something, I think, in December at the Mob Museum. I'm not sure of the date exactly yet, but uh, the Mob Museum uh, here in Las Vegas is a big attraction, uh, and we're going to have a book signing there at some point. And I believe it will be within the next month or so. I don't have the exact date unless you have it, Denny. I, I don't, but I, I know they are anxious uh, anxious to get that event scheduled because they, uh, you know, obviously it's a very interesting uh, story, and, uh, and and I know they're anxious to get you in there to to talk about it. So, uh, yeah, my understanding is it would be before Christmas, which uh, I think they're on target for that, even though they don't have a specific date yet. And we were just. Uh, talking uh, about Delilah mentioned the um, variety of interesting characters in the book and I just want to say my favorite is Benny Aspirin (laughs) and uh, yeah he's uh, quite a character and uh, if if I may uh, without giving away too much Benny Aspirin was one of these uh, people New York sent out to uh, try to get to the bottom of the uh, of the phone call or phone call hacking issue, and he uh, had quite a reputation. And, and one of the things that uh, he he did, as stated in the book, uh, rather than using a gun in uh, cases, he would use a power drill <laughs> to uh, to work on his. Uh, people he was interrogating so it, 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 there's a you know just hearing about Vinny is worth the price of the book oh yeah Vinny um, Aspirin by the way uh, Aspirin because he takes care of the mob's headaches when the mob gets a headache they send Vinny Aspirin to take care of it <laughs> oh that's a good one I kind of like Literally, the fixer but <laughs> exactly he eliminates your headaches we call him the Aspirin ah. Uh, so yeah, that was probably one of the one of the juicier mob monikers I ever heard uh, during you know, thirty years of covering that sort of stuff. So, do either one of you have listed on your websites when these events will take place, um, so that listeners can go to your websites and and find out? Uh, I don't at this point. Uh, it will be on the. I know the mob or the mob museum uh, has a actually okay. Pretty extensive list of, uh, of you know, patrons and people who are just interested in things going on at the Mob Museum. And they'll be, they'll actually be putting it on their website, and they'll be sending out a press release on that. 
And uh, as Denny mentioned, I, I think it is before Christmas. I want to say it's going to be in December for sure. And uh, that will be forthcoming shortly. Great. And I, well, I, Delilah, I will yeah. post uh, events too on my Facebook pages as well. Yes. So follow Denny, Dennis Griffin, Dennis N. Griffin, and Glenn Meek on social media, and you'll find out when they're going to show up and where. So anything, is there anything that you would like to have listeners take away from this conversation today? Either one of you or both. You know what? I think what's interesting is, you know, we, we're talking about a situation that, that began shortly after the Internet became a, a common way for people to communicate. I think there is still, and I think we see examples of it every day, uh, dangers on the Internet and, and dangers of hacking and having your communications intercepted. And I think, you know, what we saw with this case was an early example of that in a traditional way it's usually done. The first time you ever see something like this, it's usually with people who don't feel like they can go to the cops. Uh, now, though, you know, hacking has become such a, uh, such a widespread thing that it, 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 it has gone from being merely something that, that was, uh, you know, dangerous or uh, offensive to people who were involved in, a, in maybe a quasi-legal activity. And now people who have, you know, legitimate activities, whether, you know, it's pizza delivery, whether it's, uh, you, know, you know, if you're a cab company, Anything like that, anything that relies on, you know, especially in the old days, telephone traffic and currently Internet traffic, you've got to be you've got to be very careful about what you do on the Internet uh, so that people will not get in there and either, you know, hack your communications or hack your emails. And I think, you know, if nothing else, this book is an early example of why it's important, uh, you know, to be aware of what's going on in the Internet. Indeed, and, and with all types of communication in, in today's world. Denny, any final thoughts? I just want to uh, – really, that's a great point Glenn just made and uh, about being careful, and, you know, with identity theft and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. And, and yes, this, uh, the uh, situation discussed in, in wrong numbers, uh, I, I agree that was uh, an early example of uh, what can be done. And, of course, it's uh, been very much enhanced with today's technology. So you got to be careful. Thanks. And thank you both so much for giving up your time to be here today and talk about this book. The title is Wrong Numbers. We we need to get the, that word out, Wrong Numbers, with Glenn Meek <laughs> and Dennis Griffin. I, I really appreciate both of you. Uh, this was a great conversation. I learned a lot, and I think um, readers will especially enjoy the ride of this book because this case, like I said earlier, is just full of all kinds of characters. So as you go out into the big old mean world today, just remember one thing. Be kind to each other. <laughs>